The last few weeks, we've been looking through Luke 9. And Jesus has talked a lot about the difficulty of following him. Right? We've seen the cost of dying to self. That our lives, it's not about us. It isn't about our goals, what we want to see happen, what our desires are. It's not about that. It's ultimately about Jesus. In Luke 9, we've seen that the cost, one of the costs is humility. Again, our lives are not about us. It's about Jesus who then makes it about other people. We are called to count others as more significant than ourselves, looking to their interests and not just our own. We have seen uh, recently that the cost upon Christ is also rejection and opposition, whether it be family members, friends, neighbors, whether it be them just, just simply distancing themselves from us or be more direct in, in, in statements set against us. Whether it be the enemy resisting us with different trials, temptations. And we have seen the cost of this time of mercy. If you remember back at the, towards the end of Luke 9. This time of mercy that we're in. Where God uh, does not give immediate judgment on the wicked and the sinners. But rather he's, he's being patient. Wanting everyone to come to repentance. And there's cost for that. Because there's those who are, are wicked. And they may rule. And they seem to be succeeding. And they may push down those who are righteous and are following what Christ wants. Chapter 9 was a very heavy chapter, was it not? It was a very heavy message to hear. And I'm sure many of us can relate uh, with some of the things that, that Jesus did say about this cost. Some of us may be discouraged from this cost because we know how it takes a toll. Even now, some of us may be experiencing that. And we can despair. But I'm hoping this morning, as we work through our passage... That we'll be reminded of the wonderful cost it is to pay. Listen to this. In the early church about the apostles in Acts 5. Luke records this. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. And so they rejoiced that they were coming worthy to, to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. We are playing a part in God's work in our region, in our state, in our country. We know that God's word uh, it may be resisted, but it will not return void. And we can be confident and have joy knowing that there's a cost to follow Jesus, but he is the sovereign, he is the, the good shepherd, and he's the undefeated king who will never lose. And so this morning, we see that this message, uh, this heavy message from Luke chapter 9, sets the, the stage for Luke 10. This mission that we see in Luke 10. And if you remember back in Luke 9, if you have your Bibles, flip back to Luke chapter 9, right at the beginning. There was also another mission that was given specifically to the 12. Here in Luke 10, there's a different mission given out. But what we need to be certain of is that they're different. Turn to different people and different contexts for a certain time. We'll see that more as we continue. As in Luke 22, which is coming up, that there's Jesus changes some things. And so what I'm trying to get across is what we read today is a specific mission to a specific few with specific instructions. But what we will see is that there are a lot of similarities in terms of our mission today 
as well as where there's differences, the principle remains. Uh, I hope that that makes sense. And I think it'll make more sense as we go. But to remind us, the mission that Jesus Christ has given the church 2,000 years ago is concisely stated in Matthew 28, as many of us may know, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, as we look at our passage, just as I'm sure some of the disciples were discouraged after hearing Jesus in Luke 9, talking about his death, talking about the cost of dying to self, carrying their own cross, talking about how they had to give up all these things, all these sacrifices, I'm sure they were kind of discouraged after hearing that, as we probably feel after going through Luke 9, like this is very heavy. They were probably discouraged. And they may be getting distracted by different things that's going on. And then Jesus gives this clear mission in Luke 10. And so what I'm hoping is that we consider the mission in in this passage, that we would refocus as we go through this on our own mission that God has given us, and that we may take in this passage and renew our trust and dependence on Christ, who is the good shepherd, who is the one that we follow. There's a cost, but he's not forgetting who we are following. That's my hope today, that we'd be encouraged and refocused on the mission. So here we go. Luke chapter 10. The first thing we see here is this preparation for and this foundation for this mission. Verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and set them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. And I'll stop there. So Jesus... Point 72 others is sent. Let me make a little note here. If you're reading from the King James or the New King James, anyone reading from that translation, yours may say 70, right? If you're, you're like, wow, Alex doesn't know how to read. No, it does say 72 in the English, tra- English version translation. And the reason why, or your translation might have a note. If you look at it, there might be a number and it says, goes below and says, well, some manuscripts have 70. It might say that or 72. The reason for that is because the Greek manuscripts are pretty well um, split in terms of, is it 70 or 72? And what I'm telling you is that the number is not that significant. What is significant is it is 72 others. It's not just the 12 that we saw in Luke 9, but now Jesus is sending out others. The 12 continue to have a very unique position, but now it's spreading. 72 others are going. It's expanding. And it's hard to read that and not think from our passage last week that these three would-be followers of Christ that apparently, from the passage, if you remember, at Luke 9, did not count the cost that they could have been a part of these 72, but they weren't, is what it seems to be read in Luke 9, that they did not count the cost. But looking at this mission, here we go. There's similarities and there's differences with the first mission given to the 12 back in Luke 9. If you see... Uh, it's the very similar instructions, if you remember Luke 9, the beginning of Luke 9, similar instructions in what not to take, right? What not to take and what to take. And it's the same message of proclaiming the kingdom of God. But there's this progression. If you remember back in Luke 9, about this mission to the 12, I keep on referring to that because it, it's, this is building. You'll, you'll see this. There's this progression. In Luke 9, the first mission to the 12, Matthew's account of this makes clear. Jesus said, only go 
to the cities of the Jews. Now, in this mission, go to every city. And we see this progressing. The mustard seed is beginning to grow. The leaven is beginning to go through the lump, beginning to work through it. First it was 12, now it's 72, and now you can almost hear and anticipate the Great Commission that all Christians are to go baptizing, making disciples of all nations. And there's this progression. We see this building up. And Jesus does send them two by two. We see that, specifically two by two. And this is common in the ancient world to, to travel to as uh, there, there are thieves and robbers on it. And just in case something happens, you have another guy with you or whoever. Another reason Jesus may have sent them two by two is because in God's law, in Deuteronomy 19, if you want to be specific, uh, things are not established unless you have two witnesses. And so Jesus sends up two people to tell about the, the proclaiming the truth. But not only that, I'm sure for teamwork. Can we not all raise our hands and, and agree that yep, evangelism is hard? It is intimidating and it can get discouraging really easily. And you might hear two by two and think instantly of Mormon missionaries or the Jehovah Witnesses. Anyone else thinking that? Like two by two and you're like, here we go. But there's much value in having a partner, right? You may not have them with you uh, when you go talk to a co-worker, you may not have them with you as you go talk to a friend at school, but knowing that there's someone else with you who knows what you're doing, who's encouraging, who's maybe even praying for you, it's encouraging. It helps you keep focused on what the mission is. And then Jesus says this, when he begins to speak, verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, is what he says. And then this picture probably seems very... Uh, Relatable to us, right? Whether it be sugar beets, whether it be hay, whether it be corn, we know what the harvest is. The sense of urgency, uh, it's, it's go time. Time and work has been put in. Now it's time to go. It's the harvest is here. And some understand this, that there are many ready to believe. And this is true. There's uh, resistance is guaranteed, but no doubt it's also guaranteed that those that God draws will believe. We see that. But I want to suggest a different idea here. That what Jesus means by the harvest is plentiful refers to coming judgment based on the context and other things in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Just follow with me here. In the immediate context, the message that he proclaims that the kingdom of God is near, we see in Luke 5 that this is always tied with the, the command to repent. The kingdom of God is near, therefore repent. We see this pronouncement of judgment on the woes of the unrepentant cities and the end of our section that we're looking at today on Chorazin, on Bethsaida, on Capernaum. And we see this continued theme of rejection and looming judgment. There's judgment coming. There's judgment coming. And Jesus uses the same language of this, this harvest uh, in Matthew 13. If you remember the parable of the weeds. That there's, there's uh, weeds growing with the good seed, but they don't separate the weeds from the good crop because it might uproot the good crop. And so you wait till the harvest and then you divide them. There's this judgment. If you remember Jesus saying, you wrap up the weeds and throw them in the fire, in the furnace. And so the harvest, what Jesus has used before, is tied to this coming judgment. It's the, it's the day of judgment. And what Jesus possibly might be taking this from is in the Old Testament... Harvest has already been used 
for judgment. And Joel, when God is pronouncing judgment on the nations, this is Joel chapter 3, he says this, Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And so this harvest is plentiful, I suggest, has this moral idea of the judgment is near. It's coming. The time, the time is near. What does that mean for us? As we're considering our own mission. What does that mean for us? And first we need to understand that this, this idea that the harvest is plentiful. Out of that comes the command to pray for laborers and the command to go. And we see here that evangelism, us, whatever that looks like at work, in our households, at schools, wherever we find ourselves. When we proclaim the truth of Christ, it must begin with believing the depravity and the complete lostness of the lost. And the world constantly wants us to believe that they don't need Jesus. They're, they're fine. Everything's going well. Just you don't, They don't need to hear it. But we will not. We will not. And I'm talking about myself as well. We will not evangelize unless we are convinced that they are lost. That they are on their way to judgment. It is coming just like it was with us. And only by God's grace are we no longer facing judgment. And we need to believe that they also are on their way to judgment. We will not pray for laborers. We will not go unless we believe that they're in desperate need of Jesus Christ. And so believing this desperate need of the lost of Christ, it refocuses us on the mission that God has given us. And the reality is that the harvest is coming to fruition and the laborers are few. And may God count me, may God count us among the few. And Jesus says, in the light of this reality, he says, pray. And now if you're like me and you like to to get things going, you may be surprised. I mean, Jesus just said there's few laborers. And you're like, all right, well, then let's go train them. Let's send them out. Let's hire them. And let's go. Let's go. Let's pump them out. Let's go. Like There's few. So let's change that. But Jesus first says, pray. There's few. Therefore, pray. And it reminds us. It kind of sets this tone and foundation of this mission. We cannot do anything apart from Christ. We can do nothing. And so like Paul in 2 Thessalonians, we pray for the effectiveness of God's word going out with the laborers. He, he prays and, or he says in 2 Thessalonians, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And then if we see in Ephesians 6, and this is probably one of the most relatable things for me with Paul, he prays for courage, for going out. He says, Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. And also for me, that the words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. And I don't know if he's feeling, as we feel, the intimidation, that it's hard. It's hard. It's, sometimes we're, we're more cowardly than we like to, say, like to say. And Paul's praying, telling the Ephesians, pray for me. That when I go, I may speak it boldly. And so we go, 
in prayer, God, may you give us the words, may you give us wisdom, may you give us boldness. Matthew Henry has said, when God begins a fresh work, he sets his people to praying. When God begins a fresh work, he sets his people to praying. And so, are we asking God to save our neighbors? Are we praying to God to save our kids? Are we praying to God to save our, 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 our friends, our co-workers? If we have not been asking God to save these lost people, then we shouldn't be hoping for it. And to get a better picture of this, the word pray, we've already seen this multiple times in Luke, and it's, I believe, every time so far been translated as beg, begging, begging for God to send out laborers, begging God to save our kids, the neighbors, our friends. And this prayer has a way of setting the heart, doesn't it? It sets the heart. And so as we, we may be distracted and discouraged about this mission that God has given us, may we pray. And Jesus says, praying earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. And this is none other than our sovereign God. God is sovereign over everything surrounding the harvest, right? He's sovereign in drawing people from judgment to salvation in Jesus Christ. He's sovereign completely over the message that goes out. If you remember, I was just reading this morning, Isaiah 55, when he talks about how water goes out. And uh, I'm going to completely paraphrase this horribly. Like waters things so so just as his word goes out, it does not return void, but accomplishes exactly what he purposed. In the same way, God is completely sovereign over this, and He's also sovereign over judgment on that day. Right now, we live in a time of mercy. God is being patient. He's patient with the unrighteous, wanting all to come to repentance. But it is also true that God is not reluctant. To condemn an unrepentant sinner to hell. He's not reluctant at all. We can't forget that we sin against the holy creator. We sin against him. The righteous one. He sends unrepentant sinners to hell. Because of his holiness. So God indeed is the Lord of the harvest. And we pray that he may send out laborers into his harvest. And so we, I hope we hear, hear this. The extreme importance of our prayers. The extreme importance. In Revelation, if you go through that, it talks about uh, like a half hour, I believe John says, things just go quiet. Why? Because it's the prayers of the saints. I believe as incense is being put forward. Heaven goes quiet as the prayers of the saints go up. And we see the power of our prayer. And we see this command here of Jesus to pray that uh, the laborers may be sent into the harvest. And this is one major way we can be involved in the work that God's doing is praying. Praying for, for pastors, missionaries. I know Keith prays all the time when he comes up here, prays for our missionaries and for other pastors. And we pray for each other as we're sent out each week into our households, workplaces, schools, and wherever we go. And so in light of the plentiful harvest, this coming judgment, we pray. Not only that, we pray and we go. And the very next thing Jesus says, he says, pray. Then he says, go your way. Pray, go your way. Prayer expresses our dependence on God and us going expresses our trust and confidence in Him, His, his character, his, uh, his promises, His presence. And many times, God uses us 
as the answer to the prayers of prayer, right? Nehemiah, he prayed and he worked. He prayed and he worked. In the same way, we pray and we go. May we, and this is not easy to, to talk about, being, people being sent. For my for own conviction, but may we be like Isaiah who says, here I am, Lord, send me. Here I am, send me. And so we pray and we go. We go into our workplaces looking for opportunities to invite the church, opportunities to share truth. We go into your household evangelizing your household first, speaking the truth. We go into our schools connecting with friends, invite them to youth group, to church, uh, taking opportunities to share the truth. We pray and we go. The harvest is plentiful. Judgment is coming. And then we come to, at the, the second half of verse 3, this danger. Jesus does not uh, scrub things well or make it look all sugary and stuff. He tells us how it is. This is the truth. This is what you're getting into. And so he tells us the danger of the mission. In the, the second half of verse 3, he says, Behold, I am sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. We're like, that's not good. Like, the lambs in the midst of wolves. This is not going to be, this is not going to look pretty at all. I get scared of our dogs around our chickens. Because they'll eat them. But lambs in the midst of wolves. And we see this, this theme of danger, risk, rejection continues. This isn't, uh, this isn't some playground we're going into. It's a battlefield. And all throughout the New Testament, the language described in the Christian life often is used war language. Very often, Paul uses all the time, fight the good fight. The, the shield of faith. It, 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 it's all war language. Because we're not going to Disney World. We're going to a battlefield. And so we can expect trouble, conflict. I mean, this Samaritan rejection we just saw at Luke 9. And this cost we just saw at the end of Luke 9. It was no mistake. The disciples will minister under duress. And when you hear uh, lambs among wolves, one thing that you may uh, uh, think of right away is this, this picture is very often, if not the most, Tied to false teachers. Almost always tied to false teachers. In Acts 20, uh, a great chapter, as they all are, but Acts 20 is a great chapter. Paul is departing from the Ephesian elders. He's trying to direct them about the church. And listen to what he says. He's leaving. I believe, I, I could be mistaken, but he was in Ephesus for like three years. He was there for a long time compared to wherever else he went. And he's leaving. The last words. The last words. And this is what he says. This is from Acts 20. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you and not spare in the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul says, pay attention, because false teachers are coming, like wolves are coming into the flock of sheep. They're coming. And what he says, he says, I commend you to God and to his word, which is able to build you up and to sanctify you. That's how he connects it here. And so we see this picture. We hear this picture of wolves that's almost always tied to false teaching in the Bible. And we get pictures of wolf ripping apart sheep, right? Just savages going on. And that's the ultimate result. But in the Bible, we see, if you remember Matthew 7, often it's always a more um, deceptive. Sheep and wolf's clothing. A wolf in sheep's clothing, if you remember. Wolves in sheep's clothing. They talk like sheep. 
They smell like sheep. They use the same language as us. But as Charles Spurgeon has said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. If you remember, uh, I, I laugh because I think this is funny. It's not funny, but I think it's funny. Um, at the Right before Jesus betrayed, they're, they're partaking the Lord's Supper, instituting it. And Jesus, that's when Jesus says, one of you is betraying me. And they do not immediately go, it's Judas. I knew it. That snake, that monster. Right? That's not what they do. You know what they say? It's, it gives this impression that each of them goes up to Jesus. Was well, it me? Is it me? And you get this idea that Judas wasn't just this monster. He was one of them. He was with them. In the same way, these wolves among the sheep. And Jesus says, you're going out. He's sending you as lambs among the wolves. And this can be discouraging, but take heart because the good shepherd is with us. He will not forsake us. Even in the midst of turmoil and conflict and risk, we can trust God. And then Jesus continues with this mission. Now he tells us the provision for the mission. Verse 4, he says, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a set of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. And this, you may recall, is very similar to Luke chapter 9. When Jesus sends out the twelve, don't carry this, don't carry this, don't carry this. And you, you hear kind of the, it's dangerous, it's urgent, therefore go. Don't be tied down by the things, just go. And Jesus wants them to be dependent on those that receive the word. And just a reminder, if you remember back in Luke 9, this is specific to this mission. Because the next mission that Jesus gives in Luke 22, he reverses that. He says, hey, remember I said this? Now do this and take these things. It was this, this specific instruction is only for this mission. But what we can take from that, we can depend on God to supply for our needs. We can depend on God to supply for our needs. I think of, of Matthew 6 when it talks about do not worry. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be supplied to you. But what may come to surprise, this surprised me if you didn't miss this. He says, do not greet anyone on the road. Did you see that? Don't greet them. Go. And you might be like, what is going on? I can just see us uh, as we leave. Just, all right, let's go. Let's go. We gotta get going. And that's not what he's saying here. What he's talking about is these elaborate greetings that they did in the Eastern culture at that time. Very elaborate. Could take hours, if not days, inviting them in all these different things. That's what he's talking about. The task is important that Jesus sent them out with. Do not get distracted. If you remember back at the end of chapter 9, as we saw last week, the priorities. Don't get distracted. This is what you're supposed to do. Proclaim the kingdom of God. This is not downplaying friendships or relationships. This is not what that's doing. But we do need to remember that people are not saved by the power of friendships. They're saved by the power of the gospel. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so stay focused, be encouraged. The message you have is powerful to life and to death. And then Jesus comes, uh, elaborating on this power. He says, proclaim peace on the house. 
If it's a set of peace there, it'll remain. If not, it'll come back to you. And what is this picture given here? It's saying this. The message you bring is so real. It's like peace actually dwells on the house. The only way that you will ever have peace is through Jesus Christ. And if a son of peace is there, one who receives it, your peace will remain. But if they reject it, they'll go with you. Because they reject the only peace, the only way there is to have peace with God is through Jesus Christ. And so that we see that this is no trivial matter. The, the message you carry is powerful. The message you carry is literally life and death issue. And then Jesus ties us again to the provision of these laborers. The laborers uh, deserve their wages. We hear this in, in uh, 1 Timothy 5. You must not nuzzle, muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. And so he, Jesus is making sure that his laborers that they will be taken care of, that, be, that they will be provided for. If you remember back in chapter 9, I keep on referring back to it because this ties so much to it. Jesus talked about, do not go house to house, as he says here. Do not do that. Why? Because at that time, certain itinerant uh, preachers would go from house to house, pretty much asking for money, looking for a house, a better house that has better food, going from house to house. Jesus says, no, if they receive you, stay there and go. And stay there and proclaim the truth. All right, here we go. We're getting to the fun stuff. This has been fun so far, but this is fun. Four, all right, in our mission, what happens and what do we do when we're accepted? This is verse eight. Whenever you enter town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it and say to him, the kingdom of God has come near you. So he says, heal the sick. And this sounds familiar. This is the same thing as Luke nine. And if you recall... Jesus gave the apostles power to cast out demons and to heal. And then we can assume that's what's going on here with the 72. And this, the, this miracle working, as we see, we just saw back in Luke 9, but as we see through scripture, is to affirm or confirm the message that the people bring. They are able to work miracles in order to confirm the message that they give. They do miracles so that it's obvious, I'm bringing the words of God. And so Jesus calls them to heal the sick and then say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And so our first things, uh, just a few things here. Number one, it must be said. We see that. Say this. You may have heard the saying, um, how does it go? Preach the gospel at all times. Uh, if, if need be, use words. Have you used, heard that before? Sometimes it's attributed to St. Francis, uh, which I don't think is, is true. But anyway, the point is we heard that a lot. Uh, proclaim the gospel if necessary, use words. And I, the meaning's great in terms of practice what you preach, but it, that's that's horrible in terms of our mission to proclaim the gospel, the good news. It's news that's spoken, that's written. We cannot proclaim the gospel by just being friendly or nice. That's just that's not what it says. Of course, we're to love, but it needs to be proclaimed. And what needs to be proclaimed is this. What Jesus tells us to preach, and I, I take this time just for a few minute, moments. The preacher ought not to determine the message. Amen? Who cares what Alex has to say? Amen? Where's Casey? Is she in here? She's probably like, yup, yup. You don't come here to hear what I say. You come here to hear the very words of God. And so we preach the word. We are to work unceasingly to present ourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, readily hand the word of God. I take very seriously James's warning. He says this, 
Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That scares me, and I know that the, the elders take it very seriously. And so we preach what God has told us to preach. We proclaim what Jesus has told us to proclaim. And he told us to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near to you. And this probably sounds very familiar. John the Baptist preached it. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. Jesus preached it. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, 17. The initial phases of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God is breaking in. The king is here. Their sign shown is breaking in. It's coming. It's time to respond. So that's what we do in the face of acceptance. Now look at this rejection. Verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So just like in the face of acceptance, in the face of rejection, we proclaim the truth. It's the same mission. It's the same thing that we do. And he says, those that don't receive, he says, go into its streets and say, this is public. This is loud. This is for everyone to hear. They don't just go quietly after they reject the truth. And the word here for street, it, it refers to this main broad street that everyone travels. Very well traveled. It's like the marketplace. It's the main part, the city square. And so they, they're told to publicly declare when they're rejected, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Ouch, right? Like, ouch. Can you imagine? Uh, Solway Community Christmas. If the, the message is rejected and we go out there and we say, even the snow that clings to my shoe, we wipe off against you. Can you imagine that? If you recall, Paul did this in Corinth. In Acts 18, he's, uh, Luke writes, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, you, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now, I'll go on to the Gentiles. And so we see it. They weren't, they weren't to say, Hey, well, at least you gave Jesus a try. I mean, he didn't work out for you, but at least you gave him a try. That's not what Jesus says. But he says, rather, proclaim the truth that because you reject the message of Christ, the hope of Christ, judgment is coming. The harvest is plentiful. The kingdom of God is near. And Jesus asked for them to say, nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Similar to what he says to those that accept the message, but notice it does not say, to you. It does not say to you. That is, the kingdom of God comes regardless of your decision. Regardless of what you decide, the kingdom of God is coming. And you're missing You're missing it. You're going to miss it if you refuse. So don't be discouraged or distracted by rejection or opposition or resistance. Continue to focus on the mission of proclaiming the truth. Now, if you're with me, this seems very harsh. Amen? This seems incredibly harsh. But it is merciful, as I know you would agree, to yell at people who are at peace, but they're in a burning building. Amen? It would be absolutely rightful and merciful to be like, get out! It's burning! It's coming down! 
and they're inside, like, no, no, it's okay. They're playing games with their family, whatever. And you say, get out, it's burning. In the same way, it is merciful to tell people who are on their way to judgment, to hell, stop, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The harvest is plentiful. Judgment is coming. A person who never tells you that you're heading to hell is not your friend. A well-known atheist, uh, and a still atheist from what I understand, and a magician, Penn Gillette, I'm not sure how to say his last name, he has said this, and it's, it, it hurts. He says this, if you believe, this is coming from an atheist, if you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell, or not getting eternal life, or whatever, that's his words, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them, because it will make things socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? That's an atheist saying that. So may we be one of the few that tell people, you may not like it, I don't like it, but judgment's coming. And the only reason that I, it's not coming for me is because of Jesus Christ. And you too can have that if you repent and turn to Him. R.C. Sproul, he said this, The gospel is only good news when we understand the bad news. It's only good news when we understand the bad news. We cannot be soft on the bad news because then who wants the good news? Who cares if we don't understand the bad news? And if this is not enough, Jesus elaborates on this judgment. He says, it will be more bearable on that day, being judgment day, for Sodom. Than for that town that rejects the message that the, these these seventy two are going on. Wow, right? Sodom being a symbol of unrighteousness. It literally is still that in our culture. Sodom, Gomorrah. We we know just in our culture, those non Christians know that's a bad place. This is a symbol of unrighteousness and wickedness. Is Sodom, Gomorrah. But Jesus says that town that rejects the message. Talk to seventy two. It'll be more bearable on Judgment Day for Sodom than it will be for that town. Why is that? Because the truth is being proclaimed in that town. These cities have a greater revelation of the truth than Sodom and Gomorrah ever had. And Paul makes clear in Romans 1, connected with this, that none of us have an excuse before God. Because by when we look out at creation, it is clear that there's a sovereign, almighty God. He says there's no excuse. There is no excuse. If you're reading this, and yes, indeed, it does seem to be certain levels of judgment. It's what seems like in this passage. That ought not to relieve you. Because no judgment will be bearable. This is just merely comparable language. This should not relieve you because no judgment is bearable. And if that's not hard, he continues. He continues talking about judgment on the rejectors. Verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's saying this. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Then the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. 
And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. I went through that fast, but let me go through. If you are right now are lost by the city names and all over the place, hear the main point. Judgment is coming. There's no hope without Christ. That's the main point through this. The judgment is coming. It is clear. It is real. And there's no hope without Christ. Jesus says, woe to you. And this is a familiar pronouncement of judgment. It's all throughout the Old Testament. We see God pronouncing woe, judgment on these different nations. And so Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin. And this is a town in Galilee, north Israel, where Jesus has been. Remember, he set his face to Jerusalem. Now he's heading south. He says, Chorazin, woe to you. Then he pronounces judgment on the city of Bethsaida, again, in Galilee. In fact, this is the hometown of Andrew, Peter, Philip, and John. The hometown of these four. Jesus says, woe to you, judgment. He says, mighty works were done there. In Bethsaida, Luke 9, the miracle of feeding the 5,000 men plus all the children and women was done in Bethsaida. Not sure what happened to Chorazin. It's not recorded. But we know, as John says, Jesus did so many more miracles that were not recorded. And Jesus says, these mighty works that were done in your towns, if they were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in, in, in sackcloth and ashes. And just a quick catch up on, on Tyre and Sidon, they were infamous for their wickedness. They're on the Mediterranean Sea, northeast of Galilee. They were very similar to the infamy of Sodom and Gomorrah. Tyre and Sidon are right up there with, with them. They were completely wicked. And so Jesus says, if these mighty works were witnessed by the people of Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. But in you, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, you've had these mighty works, but you did not repent. It would be more bearable for, for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for your town. Can you hear the shame that Jesus is showing on these cities? That he's leaving, now he's going south. And then he singles out Capernaum. Look at this. Capernaum. And this may sound familiar, because this is another city in Galilee... Not only that, it was the hub, the center of Jesus' ministry. You'll see Capernaum all over in the Gospels in the, in the beginning. Because that's where he spent a lot of his time there. Miracles and signs were done there. Luke 4. He taught there. Luke 4. He cast out a demon there. Recorded again in Luke 4. He healed the satyrian servant back in Luke 7 at Capernaum. There was so much that went on at Capernaum. And Jesus asked, Will you be exalted to heaven? No, your place will be down in Hades. And Hades being the place of the dead. And more specifically, the place of, for the unrighteous after the judgment. In the grammar of this question, it assumes a negative answer. So it's not so much a question, it is a statement. Capernaum, your place is not going to be in heaven, it's going to be in hell. And what is incredibly condemning about this statement, and for us to hear... There is not one, not one recorded time in the Gospels of Capernaum ever ridiculing Jesus, ever kicking him out, ever rioting, ever saying anything bad about Jesus. Not once. They tolerated him. And we see that indifference to Christ is just as damnable as outright rejection. And in the last sentence, Jesus says, the one who hears you, hears me. And if we can take any comfort of this, and there's so much comfort we can take from this, 
Jesus has not left us as orphans. We don't need to guess on what Jesus wants us to do. In a time of confusion and we want direction, Jesus gives it in his word. The love of Christ, the person of Christ, the presence of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the nearness of Christ is communicated in his word. The one who hears you, specifically the message, hears me. He has not left us. He is the head of the church and rules by his word. He is not silent. And when we hear this, may we hear this warning from the Holy Spirit. This is in Hebrews 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Jesus says, the one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects the truth rejects Christ. Whether it be outrightly or as we've seen in our context here, like Capernaum who is just tolerating Jesus and different, you reject Jesus that way. Or if you remember back in verse 60 of chapter 9, just priorities, we have a different priority than Jesus, we reject him. It is impossible to follow Jesus and be against his word or part of his word. It's impossible. And then finally Jesus says, the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And we see God the Father in there, which is huge, especially nowadays when there's calls that we we worship the same God as the Muslims. Nope. They reject Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We do not worship the same, the same God as them. There's calls for us just to be one and, and connect with uh, the, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Nope. That we don't worship the same God. They deny the deity of Christ. We don't say that, that we're better than them. No. But this is the truth. The only truth that gives life. And so coming to the end here, there's a lot that can discourage us. There's a lot that can be discouraging in our culture and the direction it's going and seem to be hopeless in terms of them turning back to God. But we can be encouraged because Jesus is with you. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and behold, I am with you always to the end of age. Don't give up. Don't let up. And there's a lot that can distract us from this mission. There are those other priorities that continually to pull us away from our, the, our direction of the mission. And there are a lot of other voices saying we should focus on this, focus on this, focus on that. But we need to refocus on the mission that Jesus has given us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Don't turn aside. Continue to fight the good fight. And so like every Lord's Day, you'll be sent out this morning to your households, to, to the workplaces, to the fields, to the schools, to wherever you may find yourself. And so may we go with heart full of prayer, depending on God, knowing he is the good shepherd who provides. May we go having one or two with us to encourage us, to, to, to pray for us, to know that we're in this together. May we go knowing the danger and the risk, knowing, but also knowing the hopelessness of the loss without Christ and that we have a message that's life-giving and hope-giving. And may we go proclaiming the truth in the face of acceptance as well as in the face of rejection. And as we go, may we go not forgetting the gospel that we proclaim for ourselves. And I'm not saying... Forgetting a uh, memory of the gospel, I'm saying we're forgetting the implications of the gospel for ourselves. That you are Christian, completely forgiven in Christ. It's gone. It's done. 
that you, Christian, God's favor toward you is not based on you performing this week. It's based on Christ's perfect performance that's already done. It is finished. May you go knowing that your sins aren't just hidden from God as if you have to worry that maybe one day he'll find out. Maybe one day he'll uncover the real sin, what's really about me. But go knowing that every sin, he knows everyone, every single sin that you're doing right now, he knows every sin in the future, and he still loves you. And Jesus Christ is already reconciled with God for every single sin. You are free and you're right with God. So may we go like the apostles, as we read in Acts 5. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And so may we go encouraged, rejoicing that we, this cost that's heavy that we bear as the Son of Nine, we can rejoice because we're counted worthy to suffer for Christ. And may we go focused on our mission as, as they did not ceasing to teach and to preach, even as the council saying, you got to stop, you have to stop. And they, they continued regardless. And why? Because Jesus is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and he cannot be stopped. Amen?